turn to the prophet Isaiah. Sang a song that is uh, rooted in this particular scripture. It's Isaiah chapter 43. Isaiah chapter 43. And I'm going to read verses 1 to 7. The translation I have in front of me may not be what you have in front of you. But hear the heart of God. Chapter 43, verse 1. But now, hey, when God says that, I like that. It means there's a change. But now, thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, and your shaper, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, and through the flame, you will not be burned because I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I have given Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. From the beginning, you have been precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I will give up whole nations to save your life. I will trade their lives for yours. Do not fear, because I am with you. From the east, I will bring your offspring. From the west, I will gather you. I will say to the north, give, and to the south, don't hold back. Bring my sons from afar, and my daughters from the ends of the earth, those whom I have created, whom I have shaped, yes, who I made for my glory. The question I have to ask myself, is it possible to read these words in such a way that I can catch and express the deep, yearning emotions of God towards His people? I've been captivated by this passage for a while, and all I can say is, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. To hear the heartbeat of God as expressed in this poetry, in these words. I want you to imagine a few things this morning to help set up what I believe the spirit behind this passage is. I want, I want you to try to imagine a few things. We may have to stretch ourselves to imagine, but let's imagine. 
I want you to imagine that you are a world-famous artist. Anybody having trouble with that one? Imagine you are a world-famous artist. And you have created your life's ultimate masterpiece and is now hanging in world-class museums. This is the final painting of your long career. And your whole identity is wrapped up in this final masterpiece of your life. Because that masterpiece is actually in picture form, it is your life story. Somehow you've caught your whole life and you put it into that painting and it tells your life story. The world can't I separate you from that painting. When it sees that painting, it sees you. All right. I want you to imagine that that painting is worth one billion pounds. You're a good artist, aren't you? I want you to imagine that it's worth a billion pounds. It's in the world-class museums, and right beside it is the work of Picasso. Right beside it is the work of Rembrandt. Right beside it is the work of Da Vinci. All the great painters of history. Your painting's there. It's the climax of your life's work to put this together. I want you to imagine how many years it took you to paint this last picture. To perfect it. To get the symmetry of it just perfect. To get the balance of it just perfect. To get the texture of it just perfect. To get the colors of it just perfect. You realize this is a several year project. This is not done overnight, in a week, or in a month. This is a several year project. This one painting alone. I want you to imagine the life story that you are telling in creating this painting. Because this painting is really the story of your heart. It's the expression of your hopes, your dreams, your thoughts. It's the expression of your visions. And I want you to imagine how much thought was invested into this. How much vision, how much planning was put into it. I want you to try to imagine the emotion that you have spent in the creation. And I want you to imagine as you relive your whole life and you're translating your life onto the canvas, the tears that you have shed as you're bearing your heart and you're transferring your whole soul out of you onto this canvas. You're a master painter. And you have the ability to express your soul and your heart through painting. I want you to imagine the years, the effort, the emotion, the pain, the tears, the hopes, the dreams that have all been somehow transferred to that canvas. So much so that that painting is actually an expression and it is the exposure of your very soul. Anybody who studies that painting is really studying you because this is your life story that people are observing. 
after it's finally complete, after several years of pouring your heart out into this one painting, those emotions will linger with you for life. Always there. Always there. Because this is just not another painting. It's the full revelation of who you are. It's for the whole world to see the deepest expressions and the longings of your heart. It is the perfect exposure of your soul. Did you know you were that good a painter? Now I want you to imagine some decades have gone by and you have been retired and you haven't painted anything since. Some decades have gone by and you have allowed this masterpiece of yours, this, this exposure of your heart and your soul for the world to see. You've agreed to allow it to be taken out of the museum and put out on an exhibition somewhere else. And I want you to imagine that in moving this picture, this painting, somebody dropped it. Imagine somebody dropped it. I want you to imagine it's got a tear in it. There's a rip in the canvas. Folks, it's just not the canvas that's got a rip in it. Your heart has been ripped. I have a question for you. With all that investment, now your life work, the very expression, the bearing of your heart and soul has been ripped. I'm going to ask you a question. Is this still precious? What's your attitude towards it? Is it still precious? When you hear the news, how's it going to affect you? Will you just casually throw it out and make another one? What are you going to do with it? Will you just casually discard it? Nobody would. You know why you can't discard it? Because that painting is the summation of everything that you are. You can't possibly do it. But you do realize what's going to cost you to repair it, don't you? You do realize that repair can only be done by you. Because <laughs> nobody else will have your heart and be able to reproduce it. Nobody else. You realize that the repair will be costly painstakingly almost impossible, difficult, tedious, requiring massive sacrifice, and the repairing of it, you are going to be forced to relive the whole emotion that went into that painting in the first place. It's all going to have to be brought to the surface. And you're going to have to work through all those emotions again. And as this masterpiece will be very delicately renovated, slowly, tediously, but with tenderness. It's just not the picture that is going to be renovated. Soul 
will your damaged heart be renovated in the process? Are we catching the picture here? Are we catching the heartbeat of God behind this passage of Scripture? Or let's imagine a different scene. I imagine there is a young married couple that soon give birth to a precious baby boy. They have plans and they have visions for their son. They have so much destiny to pass on to their child. And they invest every waking moment of their lives into him. To cause that child to flourish and become everything he was born to be. He was born for destiny. They know it. And they're raising this child for destiny. And then, can you believe it? After he has grown, after all the love and affection and the investment poured into his life, for some unknown reason, he turns on his parents and brutally violates his caring parents without any regard for their sacrifice whatsoever. The crime against them is gruesome. So much so, he is convicted of his crime. And he's going to begin one very, very long sentence in prison. Decades go by... But the grief and the disappointment in his parents' heart never seems to heal. They live with this bleeding, open wound that never closes over. They had such hopes and desires for their son. But time marched on and the decades are passing by. And now the sentence is almost over. The parents are now older. What is the now elderly parent's attitude going to be? As their son finishes this decades-long sentence. Has he come to a census? Has he been delivered yet after all this time from the deceitfulness of his own heart? If so, what response can that wayward son expect from his now elderly parents that he so brutally violated? At the beginning, the son was precious to them. Is the son precious to them now? Imagine the third scene with me. It's a story of your Bible. Imagine God. I want you to imagine the world that he created. That he yearns to be filled with his glory. As he paints his masterpiece. I want you to imagine this, this desire to, to create this masterpiece, this world, and have it filled with his glory. And then imagine that he gives birth to a people. The ultimate climax of his creative acts. The creation of his people. The full revelation of his heart when he paints his people into this picture. The full revelation of his heart. And those people 
are supposed to be the vehicle of the expression of His purpose. Those people are supposed to be the manner by which the whole world will be filled with the glory of God. And because that's the task, that's the job description of the people of God, I want you to imagine the investment of God's heart He makes into these people. His investment is of His heart when He causes them to multiply. When He saves them from famine in the time of Joseph. When He supernaturally delivered them from oppression out of Egypt in a manner that the world has never seen before. Imagine the investment and the heart of God to bring these people to the birth. I want you to imagine the giving of His laws. I want you to imagine the provision He gave them in the wilderness. I want you to imagine all His tender mercies. Imagine His patience. Imagine the defeat of their enemies because He is their God. Imagine the giving of the prophets. Imagine all of these gifts that God gives and gives and gives and gives and gives. Because this is his masterpiece. This is the revelation of who he is. To see this picture is to see God himself. Imagine it. All these things. Expressions of his soul. His heart. A lot of times, according to the prophets, he wears his emotions on his sleeves as he does these kinds of things. He bears his heart, his visions and his hopes and his dreams. Imagine what God has done to get a people who will fulfill his purpose in seeing the world filled with his glory. Imagine this final act of creation, the creation of a people, to reflect his nature. Hmm. And then imagine those same people rebelling. Imagine those same people wanting their independence. Imagine those same people complaining about the provision that God gives them. Imagine them constantly with haughty brutality and violence, continually breaking the love covenant between them and God. The God whose own word called them into very existence. The God who showered his affection and his heart and his love and his mercy and his compassion and continually bared his heart for the sake of these people. Imagine the grief. That has happened. The painting has dropped. And there's a rip in the canvas. Imagine it. Imagine their rebellion reaching such a peak that it is no longer sustainable. Something has got to break. Imagine that the people of God have chosen this path that leads them out into exile, into captivity. And it leads to the destruction of everything that they have known. And disaster after disaster after disaster falls upon these ungrateful people. But the disasters that have fallen upon them are not unfair. 
The responsibility for what has fallen upon them is squarely on their shoulders. The fault is theirs. And there's absolutely no question about the justice of the sentence that they must pass through. They made vows to God, but they played the prostitute continuously. I want you to imagine the heart of the creator of this picture. The heart of the creator of this story. Who has painted this picture to us as the expression of his desires and the expression of his heart. He bared it all for the whole world to see. I want you to imagine the grief and the pain of his own people brutally violating a covenant of love and betrayal that God has experienced. I want you to imagine the pain that God has when he sees that rebellious and stiff-necked people being marched off to exile. Can God just dismiss them out of his heart? Is it possible? Are you going to throw that billion-dollar painting away because somebody dropped it? Can God just dismiss them out of his heart? From the heart of God they were birthed in the first place. Can God just forget the creation of his hands? Can he forget the priceless masterpiece that he has painted? In their captivity, will God still hold them in his heart? Imagine their jail sentence of seven decades, which was happened. Seventy years go by in exile. And it's finally coming to an end. What can this wayward, rebellious, covenant-breaking people expect to hear from the heart of God? Would God even be bothered with them after what they've done to him, the betrayal, playing the prostitute? Would God even be bothered with them? Who would want to be bothered with the tedious work of restoration in the lives of such people? So the question is, how does God address his people about to be released from exile? These people who were created for his purpose and for his glory. They have inflicted upon themselves irreparable damage and they can't fix it themselves. What will God do and what will he say? And the answer is Isaiah chapter 43, verses 1 to 7. Folks, have we any idea of the mercies of God? Any idea how merciful He is? I've sat at my desk and wept this week over the scripture. I don't know how I'm going to get it out. 
any idea of his compassion, his mercy, and the value he places on you and me. Any idea. I'm going to try to get this out. Are his people still precious to him? What is the answer? As the exile comes to its close, church, let me shout it. A new day has arrived. God says, look at the past. Look at the history. Look what you've done. But now, Thank God for the but nows of the Bible. Mercy wins. Mercy wins. Mercy rejoices over judgment. <laughs> Folks, love wins. The love of God wins. I'll say it again. Mercy rejoices over judgment. Love wins. Hallelujah. Discipline was necessary for such a wayward people. But discipline is not a negation of your election. Discipline is not a suspension of God's loving care. News flash. No sin can turn God's heart away from you. Amen. No sin can turn God's heart away from you. Repeatedly through these chapters of Isaiah, Isaiah speaks of God's ability to save, but he also speaks of God's desire to save. His desire to save. And this whole chapter 40 to 55, doesn't it open up with these words? Comfort. Comfort, my people. Call out to her that her warfare is accomplished and that her iniquity is pardoned. God says, but now. It's a new day. It's a new day. Love has won over judgment. Mercy has won over judgment. God cannot walk away from his masterpiece. can't leave you. Not possible. He's got too much investment to walk away. He's bared his heart and he's bared his soul to you. And he can't walk away no matter how you've treated it. Folks, he's a merciful God. The problem of restoration, folks, is not on God's side. The problem of lack of revival, folks, is not on God's side. Our God is jealously eager for it. 
our God has the ability to bring it about. So here's some things I want to register in your consciousness today. You and I have to learn our lesson that our future is never shaped by our past. Our future is never shaped by our past. How many are going, am I ever glad of that? (sighs) Our future is not shaped by our past. No matter how blind and deaf and stupid we may have been, Thank God our future is not dependent and not shaped by our past. Our future is rooted in the character and the nature of God. God is the shaper of my future, not my history. Not my past. God to whom we belong is the one who's going to shape my future. People of God, God says... But now, it's a new day. But because we know our past, fear grips our hearts. <laughs> we're afraid. Because of our behavior in the past, we're afraid. But God addresses the fear in our hearts with tenderness, with yearning affection. He addresses all that fear. With two words. But now. He deeply longs for his people. Listen to his tender voice. Oh Jacob, I created you. Oh Israel, I form you. Just because there needed to be a season of affliction... Church, it does not mean that God is absent. Just because there's a season of affliction does not mean that God doesn't love. No. Instead, what's going to happen when it gets to the end of the exile, God is going to breathe on those dreams again. He's going to let those dreams for you live again. I'll shout down, sit down and shout hallelujah if you won't. He is going to let those dreams, those purposes, those plans, those destinies for your life. You are His final act of creation. You are the masterpiece of the masterpiece. And He's not to let about that go. And just because we've blown it, doesn't mean that God forsakes His purpose for our lives. Folks, in the kingdom of God, fate never has the last word. God does. His heart is restoration. He simply cannot let you go. Four reasons, Isaiah says. Four reasons he can't let you go. Number one, he created you. 
Isaiah draws upon the language of Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. When God gave birth to his people, folks, you are the final stroke of his paintbrush on that masterpiece. You're the last thing he painted in there. You're the climax of the whole story. You are his creation. The same power, listen to this, the same power by which God said, let there be light, and there was light, that same power breathed into your heart and breathed into your soul, and you were born, and you were birthed, and you came alive to God. It's the same power. I want you to think of the majestic power in Genesis. Folks, that's the same power that He has breathed towards you. Nothing less than that. The people of God is the creation of God. It's the climax of God's creative power, of God's creative ability. Folks, He formed this world out of nothing. And thank God I was nothing, but He formed something out of it anyway. Come on, shout if you like it. It's worth shouting about. He created us out of nothing. If we are His masterful creation in whom He has invested the fullness of His heart, if we are the epitome of His desires in this masterpiece He's painting, can I ask you, can God just forget us because there's a tear in the canvas? Is this not proof that we are precious to Him? Number two, according to Isaiah, not only has He created you, but it says He forms you. And He shapes you. How many are glad for the hand of God in your life to bring some order to it? How many are glad for the healing of your heart and the healing of your life? He's just not your creator. He's your shaper. He builds us up. Doesn't God give the gift of His law to His people to give form and shape to them and structure to them and give them a way to live and teach them righteousness? Is God not... Folks... That's, he's, he's given you His heart when He gave you His Word, when He gave you His laws. It's the very heart of God poured out on your behalf. Folks, if He is shaping us, isn't He not investing His heart in us? Does that not mean that we are precious to God? Doesn't that mean we are precious to God? But He does finish there. It goes on and says, He redeems us. Point number three. I've redeemed you. Earlier in the history, didn't God redeem them from slavery in Egypt, the world's worst, most oppressive power? And didn't God just redeem them with miracles and signs and wonders? Didn't He just redeem them? And don't you know that in the law that God gave, that there's a law in there that says every man, every husband, every father, he's responsible to redeem his firstborn son. Well, Israel's his firstborn son. And he has an obligation, not to let them go, but to redeem them. In other words, provision will be made to pay your debt. Provision will be made to pay your debt. Is that not proof that you're precious to him? Reason number four, I've given you a name. I have called you 
by your name. You see, Jacob had a name change after a wrestling match. I'm going to call you Israel. Prince of God. Do you understand when Bible in, in the Bible when God gives names, it's just not a name. When God calls you by name, He is imparting the very DNA into your being of what that name means. And you have a destiny. And when God calls you by a name, He is putting in the DNA for you to walk in the fullness of whatever that name means. You are people of destiny. And when God calls you at the end of the seven decades affliction, He calls you by the name He gave you. That's powerful. That's powerful. That means you have it within your consciousness. Listen to me, church. Our past failures cannot erase the destiny which God has placed in us. Come on, shout amen or something. Our failures cannot erase the destiny that God has placed within us. Not possible. So he calls us by the name he has given us after all that we have done. Is that not proof that we are precious to him? Is that not proof? This is all evidence that we belong to God. To call their name is, means tenderness. Tenderness. When he says, you are mine, after all that, he says, you are mine. He's the artist. He's the restorer. He's the parent that has given birth. Folks, I'll say it again. He cannot walk away from his masterpiece. And you are the masterpiece. He cannot walk away from you. So no wonder it says twice in these verses, don't fear. No wonder it says don't fear. Because we have these, these fears. Oh, what's God going to do? What's God's attitude towards me? Has God forsaken us? Or maybe even worse, maybe we're never his people in the first place. Can God ever forgive me? For God over, oh, look what I've done. Oh, my, my life has been such a mess. I don't think God could ever use me. I mean, I, I really did rebel and I didn't know what I was doing. And, and I really went off the rails. And I, and I forget it. Forget it. Your future is not determined by your past. I'm going to shout here. Get into your future. You're going to go through some tough times. I'm not a preacher that says you're not going to have any affliction. He doesn't say if you go through the waters or the floods. He says, when? So I'm not going to lie to you. Life can be tough. Life can be hard. Life can be heartbreaking. Life can be challenging. But you know what? It's part of the picture. Because in every part of that picture he's painting when there's a dark spot. Folks, there is grace that goes into every one of those spots. He's balanced it all with grace. Israel had their share of floods and fires in the past. You do remember them walking through the Red Sea, don't you? 
didn't overwhelm them. You do remember them crossing the Jordan River. You do remember at the exile, they watched their whole city and the whole walls of their city burn with fire. But you do remember the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You do know that Moses said, while you were in Egypt, you were in the iron furnace. They know all about floods and they know all about fires. But listen to this. As you and I embrace and look towards our future, if God has already brought us through floods and fire in the past, why do we think things will be any different in our future? Has God changed? As they emerge after seven decades of captivity, there's still floods and there's still fires en route to their destiny. Challenges will be great. Challenges will be intimidating. It's not a case of if we go through them, but when. But here's the secret word. We go through. We don't die in them. We're not overwhelmed in them. We're not burned in them. We're not drowned in them. We go through. And why? Because God says, I will be with you. The presence of God conquers all the powers of this world. No wonder I crave His presence. The presence of God overrules all the powers of the world. New Testament puts it this way. What can separate us from the love of God? Famine, sore, peril, your past, things present, things past, things future. What's going to separate you from the love of God? With tender compassion, tender regard for us, God limits the powers of this world against us. News flash, floods and fire will not Destroy God's purpose for our lives, but He will make it work in your favor. He is committed to us deeply. But that's not all this prophecy, this, this portion of Scripture said. Just like God says, I've called you by a name, I happen to have names too. And those names reflect my DNA and what I'm all about, and I've got names too. And here's the wonderful part about it. Since we are in covenant with one another, I give you my name. Do we understand that? God has pledged the value of His name to these very people that so brutally violated His covenant. That's mercy and it's forgiveness. And God says, I pledge to you my name. Read the scripture. He doesn't say, I'm God. What he says this, I am God, your God. <clears throat> Hear that word, your, in there? I'm God, your God. He goes on to say, I'm not just Savior, I am your Savior. In other words, as much as Israel belongs to the Lord, God is saying, and I belong to you. That's covenant, folks. 
just as much as you belong to me, I belong to you. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I am not a distant God. I am not an unconcerned God. I am not an uninvolved God. But I am a God who is with you till you get your destiny. You're my masterpiece. And I'm with you through the whole thing till it's, the story is finished. That is our God. As the Holy One, he's referred to as the Holy One, that means in respect of the covenant, I am God Almighty on your behalf. As when he calls himself your Savior, that means my eyes are fixed on your deliverance in every circumstance. That's already been revealed so many times in the Old Testament, especially in the original Exodus story. God has not changed. To prove his commitment... oh. Listen to this. To prove his commitment to you, he says, tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to, I'm going to say something to you that you people in captivity, I hope you could understand. I'm going to tell you, to prove my commitment to you, I'm going to ransom you. I am going to pay a ransom for you. Now, wait a second. Ransom implies sacrifice. Ransom implies that love is going to be proved by some expense of some sort. So at what cost is God going to ransom his people? And I like what it says. I'm going to trade Egypt, Cush, and Seba for you. And you might say, what's that? What's that? What does that mean? I hope you realize the lush Nile River was the prize that every world conqueror wanted. When Assyria marched across the plains of this world, they were, getting, they were going for that prize. They never got it. When Babylon was marching across the world to take the whole world under its domain and authority, they never got it. No kingdom has ever won that territory. And God says, world empires have fought wars for this thing. Launched military campaigns around the world for this thing. Tell you what, I'll trade it for your life. I'll give it away to set you free understand what God is saying? What he's saying is this. No cost is too high to set you free. You're precious to him. No cost is too high for my people. Do we get this? Do we understand this? I will swap entire nations to set you free. Other people will die so that you may live. You're precious to me. Why is God willing to do this? Because it says in the middle of these verses, from the beginning, you have been precious to me. And I honor you. And I love you. Powerful. Powerful, powerful, powerful. Because God is their God, and they are His people. God is love. Our redemption is not worth, is not based upon our worth. <laughs> it's based upon God. Who He is, His nature.
They've been precious to him from the very start. When, when he talks in this passage, it, it, it's, it's like this. They're, they're his creation, they're his children, but God is talking like he's their lover. And the people are his beloved. Now, God clearly sees his people as beautiful. Now, how many know that beauty is in the eyes of the beholder? Oh, such a lovely girl. She is beautiful. Oh, and I'm scratching my head. What? What? You consider that lovely? What? But God looks at you knowing that the canvas is ripped. Knowing that the painting has been dropped. Knowing that repair needs to be made. And he looks at you and says, you're beautiful. You're drop-dead gorgeous. Oh, you make my heart beat. You're beautiful. Maybe other people can't see it, but I tell you what, God can see what other people can't see. When he looks at you with all your flaws and the rips in your canvases and all the mistakes you've made in life, he says, you're beautiful. He's a star-struck lover. He just can't get the beauty of you out of his head. Can you imagine such a response from God? Such a response from God. You're his masterpiece. You're precious to him. He's made you honorable. He has conferred a lot upon you. All your mistakes of the past don't make you any less precious to him. He can perfect whatever concerns you. He is the master painter. But folks, when the painting gets ripped, he is the past master restorer as well. He is a master restorer. So God's going to call his people back from all over the world. Through that exile, they have been scattered to the northeast, the west, and the south. They are literally thrown across the globe. And God says, what does that matter to me? I'm God. I will bring them back from everywhere. There is nowhere that your sin could have taken you that I cannot bring you back. He loves you to the uttermost. He saves you to the uttermost. No matter where your sin has scattered you, God says, give it up and send them back to me. That is our God. In other words, His presence <laughs> overrules all the powers of the world. Folks of God before us, who can be against us? So, God will show His glory to the whole world through you and me, believe it or not. You might as well quit resisting. God's just going to do it. Let Him do what He wants to do. He's going to show the world His glory through you and me. Our God is just not another one of many gods of this world. He is the one and only God from eternity to eternity. You are His workmanship. You are His masterpiece. We are his children. We're made in his image. We are his people. We're called to reflect his glory. He is the God of restoration. Yes, we have made mistakes. Yes, we have fallen short. And yes, we have deserved captivity. But now. Mercy wins over Judgment. In God's eyes, you have been precious from the very beginning. Folks, he must restore 
We are his masterpiece. And he cannot walk away.